Good morning, everybody. Uh, really good to see everybody here this morning. I um, really appreciate the, the fitting songs, John. Um, and I haven't said this enough, uh, and we'll probably end up saying this a few more times, but um, Eve and I are both just really thankful that you're willing to support us going to Africa in October to see Dan um, and stay there for nearly the entire month of October. Um, I tend to be very hyper-aware of um, how much work goes into having to cover teaching um, when everybody here has other things that they have obligations towards. And so uh, it's a lot of time to fill in, and so just very thankful that you're willing to do that. Um, but something that I, I think a lot about is when Paul talked about going somewhere to teach and brethren were supporting him to go to another place, um, he talked about that as if that's them working together and not just him going, but them going with him. And so I, I, I think about that uh, whenever I go anywhere else uh, to teach, but going to Africa um, especially, I think about that, um, that really y- you all are uh, going with us in a lot of ways, and I hope that when we get back uh, we can share in detail um, the most encouraging aspects of our time there. So really hoping to do that, Lord willing. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 25 this morning, and the title of the lesson is How Love Suffers Long. Um, I think that's really encapsulated in the Psalms in general, but particularly here in, in this Psalm. Uh, really, one of the greatest qualities of love is that love is long-suffering. In 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul is describing love in detail, kind of defining it, uh, there's actually three times he talks about long-suffering amidst all of the other qualities talks about how love is patient, love is long-suffering, and love never fails. This idea of, you know, love doesn't just stop at some point or diminish, but that love, love suffers long. And I think Psalm 25 gives us a clear view of what that looks like, especially in our relationship with God. And I'll argue if we can get long-suffering aligned in our relationship with God, it will help us and equip us to align that in our relationships with others as well. Uh, so really, when we start with God, then we can begin to be long-suffering with others in the appropriate way. A few introductory things about this psalm. Um, these are some things that, uh, how do I describe this? I've, I've thought about describing this as, in your mind, <laughs> taking out some boxes, and I just want to put some things in those boxes and then put them away, um, related to the psalm, uh, but things that I'm not really going to get into too much in this lesson, but I think are, are helpful, important things about the psalm. It's four things. I just want to bring up really quick, just as some introductory things. Number one, all of the Beatitudes are in the psalm. Uh, so Matthew 5, 3 through 10, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, etc., etc. Uh, actually, every one of those Beatitudes is in this psalm, just this psalm. Um, and I don't mean they're not other places in the Bible, but there's a place for each of those Beatitudes in the psalm. So it's almost like this psalm is an illustration of the kind of person Jesus is actually describing in Matthew chapter 5, 3 through, three through 12. So put that in a box, put it away. Uh, this is an acrostic psalm, meaning that it's organized according to the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, so every line starts with another Hebrew letter in order. Um, I think it's missing like one or two letters but it's still acrostic. It, it deliberately has A, B, C, D, E, F, G, again, in a Hebrew way. Uh, the purpose of that is this is like a super poem. <laughs> you know, if poetry kind of makes things more emotional, more memorable, uh, acrostic poetry is meant to be especially memorable. 
and should especially be able to be committed to memory. So there's something about this psalm then that is kind of extra special. Uh, usually if you were to ask someone, hey, what are some psalms you remember? Uh, psalm 25 is probably not on their list. Uh, but I'd argue this is a very important psalm. And the things that the things and the themes within the psalm are just really central to the nature of our relationship with God. So put that in a box, put that away. This psalm also has a lot of first things. Um, and I know this might sound weird, and I'm not going to be able to really describe this, but I don't believe the psalms are just a random assortment of prayers. I think in a study of the psalms, there is a very deliberate order to the psalms, as there is with other books of the Bible. Um, you can talk to me about that if, if you'd like to. I think that's a very amazing thing, interesting thing about the psalms. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of first things in this psalm. Verse 22, a very important word, redeem Israel. This is the first psalm that's used the word redeem. It's the first psalm that uses the word compassion. It's the first psalm that uses the word wait. It's the first psalm that uses the word pardon. And it's the first psalm that uses the word forgive. It's also the first psalm that asks for forgiveness. So Psalm 19 says something similar. Um, in Psalm 19, he says, acquit me of hidden faults. But in that, in that psalm, he's saying hidden faults. So it's like things that, you know, the psalmist isn't really aware of. But in this psalm, three times, he asks for forgiveness for things that he is very aware of and understands the magnitude of. So that's, that's significant, that this is the first psalm where he deliberately asks for forgiveness of things he's aware of. So a lot of, a lot of first things in this psalm, which I think, again, makes it more important. You know, there's a lot of uh, unique qualities to the psalm. So now put that in a box, put that away. Fourth thing, final thing by introduction is everything that was said in last week's lesson about grace is also encapsulated within the psalm. Uh, really, the three things that I brought out about Paul's example are also in David's example here. And grace is illustrated through David's example like it was for Paul. So David sees the grace of God personally. Uh, this psalm also mentions the loving kindness of God more than any other psalm so far, by far. Uh, loving kindness is an Old Testament word that encapsulates this idea of grace. So David sees the grace of God personally in this psalm and shows us how to see it personally. He sees his unworthiness in view of God's grace, and he sees God's grace in view of his unworthiness. That's like Paul in uh, last week's lesson. And also the grace of God fuels and protects a zeal and labor for the Lord that are otherwise impossible. We're going to see that in the psalm like we saw, saw it with David. Put that in a box, put it away. None of those things are going to be the focus of this sermon, but I do feel like those things might be helpful to keep in mind, maybe equip you in your own reading and meditation on the psalm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this psalm again and read it all the way through, uh, kind of give some context with some things said at the end of the psalm, and then we'll kind of work through it and summarize some points. This won't be like a phrase-by-phrase -phrase teaching of it, but summarizing some points. So Psalm 25, verse 1, Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. I want you to keep in mind how little David has at the time of writing this um, and how important it was for David to apply this attitude to be able to write these things. Uh, David had the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, The book of Joshua, maybe, he had to meditate on. Was the book of Judges fully distributed, written by Samuel by this time? I don't know. Uh, But certainly uh, beyond Judges, you know, David would know of Ruth, but would he, you know, read about uh, his ancestry with Ruth so closely to his life? Maybe. I uh, certainly wouldn't have a written account of his own life finished yet. I mean, he was still living his life. I just mean to say, it's amazing how little David had, and yet how the depth of his faith exceeds ours in so many ways. And again, how vital it was for him to have this attitude to then even be able to write these things. He sees everything in a way that is so extraordinarily personal and in ways that transcend, again, just the boundaries of an old covenant context. Uh, As I'm summarizing some of these points, I'll be trying to kind of connect things to the New Testament. Um, I don't know if you can see this. My my Bible on this side is full of notes, so I've I've kind of got to be really picky and choosy. But it's just amazing when you meditate on the phrases of the psalm, how everything is just saturated with New Testament themes, New Testament instructions, New Testament promises. What David is communicating is not just things related to an Old Testament context, you know, restricted to the time of his life, but they're principles of faith like Hebrews that are greater than just this moment in his life. So we're first going to start with one through seven with David conveying his sense of desperation. Kind of look down really quick. So 16 through 19 gives you a circumstantial context. I think it's really amazing that in some Psalms, There are things that are conveyed for a while where they don't really divulge the full detail of just how bad things are until the very end. And then that kind of helps you look back and say, oh, wow, it's actually even more amazing that everything they said was said in that context without drawing attention to it until the end. So mind you, everything David is saying, he's lonely, he's afflicted, he's troubled, he's distressed, he's afflicted, he's troubled, he's dealing with the enormity of his sin that he's seeking forgiveness for, and he is being pursued and oppressed by enemies who hate him with a violent hatred. David is not in a good situation here. And he conveys that in the beginning. He hints at it. And so let's go back and think about this. So verses 1 through 3, how I've summarized this is David is entrusting himself to the Lord. He's affirming his trust in the Lord while also acknowledging the desperation of his situation. So when he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. 
David is not allowing circumstance to dictate his faith in God. David is not letting circumstances dictate his devotion to God, his trust in the Lord. David is being deliberate to affirm his faith in God. He is making an appeal to God. But this isn't like writing down a form or submitting something in a stack of papers. David is submitting his soul. He is entrusting himself with expectation directly to the Lord himself. This is completely personal. Verse 2, oh my God, in you I trust. I'll argue that the psalmists do not affirm something like this unless they're being pressured to withdraw from it. You know, I don't know how much in your prayers you say, God, I trust you. (laughs) It's usually not something I say in my prayers. Usually that it feels implied, you know, I trust God. You know, but there's times when you're suffering pressure in a relationship where it is important to say, I trust you, I do trust you, or I love you, I do love you. You know, David isn't saying he trusts the Lord because that's not a struggle he's facing. He's saying he trusts the Lord because he's being tempted to not trust the Lord. He's doubling down and rooting himself even more. And this phrase, do not let me be ashamed, this is a phrase that conveys desperation and urgency. Phrases like this are only used in circumstances that are nearing catastrophe and total failure. And what David is saying is not just let, do not let him suffer discomfort. He's obviously already suffering discomfort. What he's ultimately praying for is God not allow his promises to fail. That what it seems like is happening is David's circumstances are becoming so dire where God's promises are being put at risk. It could not be any more dire than that. And so David begs God, don't let him be ashamed. Don't let his enemies exult over him. But in verse three, again, another affirmation that faith creates this tension where we both have full assurance. You know, God is not going to let us down. We wait on him. But that doesn't necessarily change the degree of tension I feel, how bad things are. And so both can be acknowledged at the same time. You know, so David feels the desperation of his circumstance. He sees the direction from his perspective This is all going. And yet at the same time, he fully trusts that God is not going to allow those who wait on him to be ashamed. It's those who deal treacherously with the Lord who will ultimately be ashamed. Last point here with these first three verses, at least, is there's something about victory for God's enemies when God's enemies feel as if they have won the victory or are gaining the victory. There's something about that that is an important tool that God uses as a weapon against them to seal the defeat of his enemies. That's the cross. You know, it looked like Jesus was being defeated on the cross. It looks like Jesus' enemies had, had exalted themselves over him and were exalted over him, and they had completely annihilated Jesus. You know, it looked like he was ashamed that this hope that he had in God, it looked as if it had completely failed. But there's just something about God's enemies receiving the illusion of victory and for God's people to seem as if they've been defeated, there is something about that that is a necessary tool that God uses as a weapon against his enemies, not to destroy, but to convert. You know, the Psalms are an extraordinarily evangelistic book. You know, was the cross just to throw it in the face of God's enemies that they lost? You know, that what they thought they had won, they hadn't, and then just kind of belittle them by that? No, the cross was not just the victory for Jesus, but the victory that would convert those who had thought that they had the victory, right? Verses four through five. In this situation, in this, 
he much more fiercely seeks the Lord's guidance. You know, I love the New American Standard in verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. You know, this isn't something that David is passive about. And what this shows is David meditating on the, on the will of the Lord, seeking his guidance, is not something reserved for convenient circumstances. Or when everything's going the right way, or when emotionally, he has enough emotional freedom to just easily and readily have room in his mind for the Lord. No, he fiercely and aggressively seeks the Lord's guidance. And I want you to think, what happens when you're suffering pressure and tension in your life? Usually that's when we forget God's will. Usually that's when we justify compromising his will. Usually that's when we let the circumstance dictate the degree of our frustration and we let our anger and our frustration lead us to think and act and speak in a way that is not according to the will of God. That's not faith. When things are hard, David doubled down and more fiercely sought the Lord's guidance. It was not a convenient time. So when for you is it no longer important to seek the Lord's guidance? And notice as well, he's seeking guidance from who? He's not just saying, God, help me find a script of your law. You know, David was aware of the law. I think David would read and meditate on the law. But what David is seeking is wisdom and guidance from the Lord. And I think there's a couple of passages quickly that help with understanding what's meant here. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you, but that such is common, that, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. It's a great promise. But how do you take a promise like this, and then in the time of trial or temptation, actually navigate it to find that way of escape? How do you do that? Well, you certainly have to seek it out, right? And so this isn't just something that magically happens or naturally happens. We've got to seek the Lord's guidance. And there's lessons to be learned along the way. God will provide the way of escape. That is a guarantee. But that doesn't mean we don't have to seek his counsel to find it, to open our eyes. And notice that you will be able to endure it. David is waiting in verse 5. For you, I wait all the day. This idea of waiting on the Lord is that concept of endurance. And then James 1.5, after he's talked about enduring trials with joy, afterwards he talks about not giving into temptation. He says in the middle, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. It's exactly what David is doing here. How do you take instructions that God gives, like rejoice in a trial, in a trial? Does it just happen naturally? Or do we have to seek the Lord's guidance to get there? Do we have to fiercely pursue it when it's no longer convenient, when it's no longer easy? And are there lessons to be learned along the way that God has reserved for those who have the faith to seek him at that time, right? And so David's not just seeking God's counsel when it's convenient, when it's easy, but these New Testament promises we are told to pursue, David, even without clear instruction, is going there and is seeking those things. And then six and seven, like Paul the Apostle, you know, his understanding of his unworthiness in view of grace. God's grace amplifies our unworthiness. So David understands that his appeal is not on the basis of any merit. He has no right to these things, even though he is God's anointed. Remember, O oh Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. David wants God to remember his past works, the Lord's past works, not his, as in David's, past works, his past transgressions. 
So I want to talk about this word loving kindness just really quick in verse 6 because it's in verse 6 and in verse 7 and down in verse 10. This word loving kindness is a word that God uses to describe himself in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses actually asks, make me know your ways, show me your glory. God proclaims his own character and he talks about his loving kindness. This is one of the most important words in the Old Testament that conveys God's covenantal faithfulness his covenantal love that he gives especially toward his people. Uh, The word for loving kindness is the word hased, and it is used 129 times in the Psalms. And I want to say again, it's one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament. It's up there with the word holy for God as his self-described nature. It's a word that is very important for the character of God. 129 times in the Psalms. The second most times this word is used in any other book It is used 12 times in 2 Chronicles, 12 times. That means the Psalms literally use that word more than 10 times more than any other book of the Bible. This incredibly vital word of God's character that expresses his covenantal love for his people. Because the psalmists understand their need for this covenantal love. They are calling on God to keep the promise of what's displayed within this faithful covenantal love. They depend on this. What David needs the most is not judgment on his enemies, although he certainly asked God to take note of his enemies. What David needs the most is covenantal love. He needs God's mercy and compassion. And verse 7, he asks this for for the Lord's goodness's sake. Last thing about this is, again, like the Apostle Paul, uh, we talked about this last week, his unworthiness and how strengthened he is by the grace of God despite his unworthiness. We see that with David here. It's not that he doubts God's forgiveness for his past, but think about this. Did Paul the apostle ever forget that he persecuted the church? Did he ever forget how terrible that was? And the fact that he didn't forget that, was that because he didn't think he was forgiven? Or that he was still struggling with like forgiving himself or something? I don't think that's the case at all. You know, God has created us with memories And we don't need to ignore the fact that we've done things against God in our past that are things of iniquity, that are defiling, that make us unworthy to even think about God or know of God. But again, if we see his grace, his loving kindness, it makes us more humble, more motivated to find greater strength in his grace, to be more amazed that he's willing to work with us, teach us, and be patient with us. What he goes on to say in verse 8 is, God does not work with the deserving, but especially with the undeserving. So verse 8 through 15, the glory of the Lord's goodness is proven in the way he invests in and works with sinners. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs who? In the way? Sinners in the way. You know, and David is not talking about unrepentant sinners, but I want you to think about this. These are very rhetorical, simple questions. Is kindness made more clear when I'm kind to someone who's easy and kind back to me and good to me? Or if I show continuous kindness to someone who's cruel to me, who never pays me back, who forget about me and treats me poorly, if I continue in kindness to them, what shows kindness more? Clearly, if I'm showing kindness to someone who is undeserving and continuing in it. You know, God shows the glory of his goodness and he proves it because God chooses to invest especially in the undeserving and the unworthy.
You know, think about Jesus in the gospel in Mark chapter 2. This is after he called Matthew to follow him. Matthew gives a big reception at his house, and there eating with him were many tax collectors and sinners. They were dining with Jesus and his disciples, and they were following him, you notice, these sinners. The Pharisees see this, they grumble to his disciples, how does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, overhearing this, says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. What are we to do with that? Should that change us? Should that impact us? You know, what David is doing in verse, uh, in verse 12, or rather verse 8, is he's recognizing the kind of person he needs to be and finding comfort that as he's aware of his sin, he's in the safest place he can possibly be in his relationship with God. What we're to do with Mark chapter 2 is if I realize how sick I am by my sin, how spiritually sick I am, when I recognize the enormity of my sin, I am never in a safer place to learn from the Lord is when I recognize the seriousness of my sin. And then remember the Beatitudes. You know, why does Jesus say what he says in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. You know, is he just saying blessed are the poor in spirit when they're poor at one time, at the beginning of their faith? No, that's when we are most blessed perpetually. That I continuously have to remind myself that I'm never safer with the Lord than when I'm poor in spirit. Those are the people who get his kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. When I'm no longer impacted by my sin, then God can't comfort me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Notice in verse 13, there's a parallel verse here. His soul will abide in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the land. Blessed are the meek, the humble, the teachable, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Why is Jesus saying those things? So that we pursue them. That he make it clear, here are the kinds of people I can work with. These are the kind of people I can give the greatest grace to. The people who I can have the closest bond to, right? Why is David remembering these qualities of the Lord's relationship with people? Because he's finding security in the place where he is. 8 through 15, by the way, is all talking about God. He's meditating on the Lord. And only in verse 11 does he talk directly to the Lord in the midst of these things. The rest of this is a meditation that the Lord leads and instructs sinners. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. When people keep his covenant and his testimonies, God causes them to abound in loving kindness and truth. In verse 11, God will instruct this person in the way he chooses. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. So in verse 12 through 15, the Lord never fails to provide prosperity and security for those who fear him. A lot of times in the Psalms, this seems like a contradiction because I'll just remind you again, 16 through 19, do those verses sound like somebody who is prospering? Somebody who's in an enviable position? I would say absolutely not. And yet in verse 13, the soul of this person is abiding in prosperity. I mean, how does this work? Number one, I want to remind you of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Is what it says eventually there. In whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind uh, drives away. There's this contradiction 
that presently it seems like the wicked are prospering. They're the ones succeeding. It's the righteous, like Hebrews, who are wandering in sheepskins, goatskins, and in deserts and holes and caves in the ground. Presently, it appears as if it's the wicked who prosper. Is that real? You know, I've seen uh, sculptures before where they were like optical illusions. And maybe you've seen things like this where like someone sets up rods and blocks and at every angle except one, it just looks like some random assortment of rods and blocks. But when you're looking at it from the perfect angle, one angle, it becomes like a very detailed portrait of a person, very detailed and very amazing. And then you step away slightly and it turns back into rods and blocks. The idea is faith helps us see prosperity from the right angle. Faith equips us to see what it means to be prosperous from the right angle. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 got to the idea. Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? He was looking to the reward. Moses without even the law of Moses being written yet. All he had were verbal promises being passed on from Abraham's day. And he had enough to know that prosperity was not the wealth of Egypt or the passing pleasures of sin. Shame on us when we see it any differently. Knowing Christ, knowing his death, knowing his resurrection, knowing the life of Paul, knowing the letters to the churches, knowing the Psalms, shame on us when we can't even fundamentally live up to that fundamental call of faith. In the Lord, there is no loss. One last example that I think gets to the idea here is the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was living in luxury and splendor every day. And poor Lazarus laid at his gate, was covered in sores with dogs even licking his sores. Who was really prospering? The rich man died, was taken to Hades, Lazarus was taken to Abraham's bosom. If that was a true story, which it may very well have been since they are named, you know, right now, if that rich man's misery is only continuing and Lazarus's comfort is continuing, who really is prospering? Who really had prosperity? Again, oftentimes it's the world's trying to give us an angle of prosperity. That's all a lie. God gives us the true view of what really matters. Finally here, 16 through 22. David's hope for deliverance. Here he comes back to talking to God through the rest of the psalm rather than talking about God. The Lord alone can resolve my loneliness, affliction, trouble, distress, sin, and oppression. You know, verse 16 through 19. You know, something that I'm very encouraged by is how what I see in the psalms is faith equips me to more fully embrace the reality of suffering rather than neglect it. I think something that can easily happen is we just don't feel equipped to deal with these realities, and so we ignore it. Uh, we don't know how to work through it, and so we don't work through it. Uh, we pretend like it's not there, or we pretend like it's very strange to feel lonely, to be afflicted, to acknowledge that you're in trouble and the troubles of your heart are only getting worse and actually not getting any better that we're in distress or need forgiveness of sin that has just completely overwhelmed us or suffering oppression. Because the Lord equips us and gives us the tools to work through these things, 
we can much more honestly deal with it, speak of it, and embrace it and work through it. You know, verse 16, this is one psalm where he mentions just more words talking about trials than any other. Again, to be redundant, David is lonely. He's afflicted. He's troubled. He's distressed. He again, in verse 18, is afflicted and troubled. He has sin in his life. He needs forgiven. And in verse 19, the people around him, and and mind you, these aren't people like Goliath that you just throw a rock at and kill. When the psalmists are talking about enemies that all they can do is wait, they are not talking about Gentile enemies. They're talking about their brethren, people that they cannot fight against and maintain righteousness. All he can do with these enemies is wait on the Lord. He can't lift a sword. He can't use his words. He just has to wait on the Lord. And the idea, again, is the Lord alone can resolve these things. You know, there may be things God provides that help, but ultimately all of that help is from the Lord. In verse 16, all David can do is say, turn to me, be gracious to me, because the Lord alone is able to deal with it. First Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, and this idea of all grace is God has everything we need. God has a solution for every problem. He has every resource to ultimately resolve every distress we faced. Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, God alone, will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I know this might sound strange, but when we deeply, truly feel alone, we may at that point never be closer to the Lord than when we feel truly alone. You know, you imagine in Gethsemane how alone Jesus felt. Imagine in his ministry how alone Jesus felt. When we are alone in the world, we are not alone from the Lord. When we are afflicted, when our hearts are troubled and overwhelmed, we may be closer to the Lord than any other time. When we are afflicted and troubled and feel the weight of our sin, and we accept, we acknowledge the weight of our sin, we may be closer to the Lord than at any other time. In times of comfort, in times of ease, times of peace. You know, thank God for times of peace. But it's not through peace that we most deeply come to know God. It's through trial and it's through affliction. Some last points here to make is verse 20 and 21. David finally returns back to begging God to guard him. There's no degree of suffering worth yielding any degree of trust in the Lord's power and his will. And notice how intimate this is in verse 21. David's not just trying to bargain with God and keep just a a mental belief that God's existence is real and that God will someday deliver him. David is even clinging to integrity and uprightness. Everything God has given him, everything involved in godliness, righteousness, holiness, David will lose nothing, not even for a moment. Because to faith, God is one. There is not a moment, there is not a situation where Anything except closeness with God is is an option. In the Psalms, withdrawing from God is not even on the table. Withdrawing from God is not an option that they even see or even consider or even flatter. God is one. He is the only option. God is one. He is the only solution. God is one. He is the only good thing. And any other option is not good. It is either death or the Lord. And there's nothing else to the psalmist. Note 1 Timothy chapter 6. I just didn't have the space on the board to put this on the board. I tried to. Um, So if you'll turn there and uh, read it with me. But I think this really cuts to the idea 
of what David is seeking and Timothy is being instructed, I think, to have the same attitude to not just maintain a view of God that's true in trials, but to maintain all of what God gives to forsake nothing, but only ever draw closer to the Lord, no matter the struggle, no matter the cost. First Timothy 6, verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus rather, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 14 is this idea, what I've just told you, you keep it entirely, no stain, no reproach, no withdrawal, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man can, has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I'll say it again. There is no degree of suffering. It doesn't matter how lonely you feel, how much you're struggling with temptation, how much you feel like you're suffering, how long suffering seems to continue beyond when you feel like you ought to have been delivered. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable you get. There is no degree of suffering worth yielding any degree, any of trust in the Lord's power and will. Any other view is not a view that is rooted in faith. And finally, verse 22. David says something very unusual at the end. Redeem Israel, O God, all of all, out of all his troubles. It's unusual. It's quick. But I think this is actually a very profound mission statement. Remembering the Lord's mission for his people gives greater resolve to endurance. And the final scripture here, I think, gets to the idea. 2 Timothy 2.10. When Paul is inviting Timothy, who seems to be suffering discouragement in the second letter, it seems like Timothy is discouraged, he's getting demotivated, worn out. And so Paul talks a lot about suffering in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, For this reason I endure all things. Why? For the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Why did Paul, the apostle, have the kind of resolve that he had? What motivated him? What strengthened him? It's because he knew the big picture, right? This isn't about just him trying to overcome things to just gain personal glory or, you know, personal character. As he endured, it was equipping him to be a part of the bigger solution. God's people need help. What is epitomized through these illustrations of grace God's people need the help of loving kindness. And we can either be a part of a problem where we don't display that loving kindness or live it out, or we can be a part of the solution. People change through covenantal investment. We put our hands in deep. It's so much easier to show grace and to be merciful and to work hard for people when you're investing in them deeply for the Lord's purpose. David saw this. You know, these psalms are incredibly personal. They're meant to be taken personally. But David was a personal person. So was the Apostle Paul. So was Jesus Christ. God has a mission 
And he needs workers. He needs peacemakers. The goal is not just that we gain some kind of self-endurance, although that's important. We're trying to help God's mission to redeem Israel out of all its troubles. We can be a part of the problem, or we can work with God and be a part of the solution. And if that's what we want, this is the path to get there. And that's the lesson for this morning. Um, as usual, um, I do want to say a prayer for these things. But again, if you're here this morning and this psalm and the lessons from it have convicted you in some way that you need to be bringing something forward to this church, confessing some sin, seeking to reconcile uh, an issue with a brother or sister, or needing to put on Christ in baptism and salvation, please bring that forward at the time of our invitation song. But before that, we'll say a word of prayer.